That was good. That was good. That was a nice hug. That's a great hug. I'm excited to be up here. I'm also really nervous because I am co-lecturing with Steve on the issue of trauma and abuse. It's a 45-minute lecture, and I get 20 minutes to try and describe to you uh, why there's trauma, what is trauma, and how to heal from trauma. So that's really, really difficult, especially because I've spent five, six years studying this issue. Uh, but more importantly, I've spent my entire life trying to navigate how to find connection in the midst of being traumatized and how to work through and heal my own trauma. Uh, this began um, really early on in my life, but when I was a trainer, I was a personal trainer for nine years, and going through my graduate programs, I really wanted to find out if there was a word or if there was a term that helped um, in the Bible kind of identify this, this issue of health. Okay? As a trainer, I'm looking at models of health. I'm looking at um, what is health, what is fitness. So I tried to go through the Bible, and I'm looking. And a word stood out to me as I was kind of studying Scripture and doing some research. And that word was shalom. And this word, we're going to use this a lot in this lecture today, this word is probably the most comprehensive word for the issue of what we mean by health in the Bible. So if we're thinking about healing from trauma, we need to think about what does it look like to be healthy. And what it looks like to be healthy is actually to live in and embody this kind of culture of God's shalom. So let me define this briefly. And I think Cornelius Plantiga has one of the best definitions on this. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior, opens doors and welcomes creatures to whom he delights, and I love this, shalom, shalom in other words, is the way it is supposed to be. And I love that. Shalom is the way it's supposed to be from Genesis 3. As I began to kind of enter into this idea of shalom, I started to then study what does it mean if, if Satan's main desire is to twist and to tear and uh, distort God's intended shalom, what's, what's one of the greatest ways that he can do that? And I am convinced personally that trauma is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, threats to God's intended shalom because of its ability to disconnect us from ourself, from others, from God, and the world around us. I believe that trauma is the greatest threat to shalom. Now let me talk about why that is. There's a definition um, for trauma that I'll briefly read. Uh, it's by the Substance Abuse Mental Health and Services Administration. They've been studying the issue of trauma for about 20 years. They've been a pioneer in the issue of trauma. So if we could put that on the slide. Defining trauma, how they define it, individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. When we think about this at a communal level or a collectivistic level, 
Kai Erickson is a researcher on the issue of trauma. And he looks at especially cultural trauma, racial trauma, communal trauma, and this is what he has to say. Trauma is a blow to the basic tissue of social life that damages the bonds attaching people together and impairs a prevalent sense of community. That at the heart of trauma and how we define it and how we understand it is it's this fracturing of what it means to be connected with ourselves, connected with other people, and connected with God. And it's a great threat against God's intended, beautiful, holistic, connected shalom. If we think about one facet, so you have trauma as kind of this big category. We hear that a lot. We're hearing that more, especially in a lot of uh, recent news. But if you think about trauma, if you look at a specific type of a trauma, which is abuse, okay? Uh, abuse is one form of trauma, and that's typically neglect or emotional or sexual or physical abuse. There are different types of abuse. But if we think about abuse as a whole, this is a quote by Steve Tracy, who will be coming up. He says that abuse is using our God-given power to take advantage of another person. That we have, because we're made in God's image, and God is a powerful God with capacities to heal, capacities to move, capacities to create, we've been given those capacities, but when we use those capacities to, to wound and disrupt shalom in another person, that is abuse. And the reason why abuse is so fracturing is because it's almost always relational. Let me, let me correct that. It is always relational. Abuse is always relational. And when we experience abuse relationally, that fractures our idea of a relational God. Let me say that again. When we experience abuse in relationship, what that means is that our relationship with God is fractured and our relationship with ourself is fractured. This idea um, is prevalent through Scripture. I call this the trauma of Scripture. And the trauma of Scripture is this, that our entire faith, the entire, the entire narrative of Scripture at almost every point along the line is traumatic. And the pinnacle of our faith, which is Christ on the cross, is the most horrific injustice, the most horrific abuse, the most horrific trauma that any individual has ever experienced. Okay. Partly because God was fully man and he was fully God. That it was such a grave injustice because he had complete purity and yet injustice was done to him. It should not have been this way. And yet we would say our entire faith is kind of peaked at this point of Christ on the cross. That actually our faith is bathed in trauma and the trauma of scripture kind of reveals this and lays this out. So I'm gonna come back on stage later but I just wanna transition to Steve and let him kind of explore this idea of the trauma of scripture a little bit more. If you would welcome Steve up onto the stage for me. All right. Andy, you did a good job of giving us a quick survey of shalom, but you really missed something important here. Um, you know, the verbal descriptions are one thing. I want to give you a picture, an actual photograph of shalom. 
<laughs> this is Shalom Kaketo, my granddaughter in Uganda. <laughs> Grandparents don't need a lot of excuse, but... Um, <laughs> oh, I love that little girl. Love the name Shalom. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, Abby and David chose that for her name. And my prayer is that she will be a kingdom princess and a kingdom warrior for Shalom. And when she gets a little older, we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, shalom is God's desire. This is going to be the proverbial drink out of a fire hose. My seminary students are used to that. Uh, I want to give you from Genesis to Revelation, real high level overview uh, of the trauma of Scripture, particularly in terms of abuse. Two reasons real quick I want to do that. This isn't all, always understood. Um, just a couple years ago, a book came out, um, two really respected uh, Reformed pastors, theologians, uh, What is the Mission of the Church? Uh, Kevin DeYoung, one of the authors, very well known, very respected for good reason. Um, and it's a very well-written book, great accolades, D.A. Carson and others. They make the statement, while shalom is God's mission, it's not the church's mission. I say that with all due respect. It's a very well-written book. Um, and they, they're very specific that the mission of the church is make disciples. Matthew 28. It's not, it's not building shalom. They talk about how social justice is important, but it's not the mission of the church. With all due respect, they're wrong. <laughs> I can say that because people criticize me for what I put out there as an academic, so, you know, it's fair game, as long as we do it fairly and respectfully, right? Um, it's the way it works in the academic world. Uh, we, none of us get it all right. Um, you'll have to decide based on the fire hose experience if, if I know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced. Uh, of course, they, they make many great points, uh, many great points. Of course, the mission of the church is to make disciples but Jesus clarifies what that means in Matthew 28. Teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Jesus had so much to say in his teaching and in his own practice about what we might call social justice in terms of caring for the marginalized, restoring what was broken. And probably Matthew 25 would be the supreme example of that. Jesus makes... Uh, in the sheep and the goats judgment what we do to the least of these including those who've been abused and otherwise traumatized the litmus test to whether we go into the kingdom eternally or into eternal judgment as much as you've done it to the least of these fed the hungry clothed the naked visited the prisoners etc um, but let's go back and a super quick overview um, the trauma of Scripture. And we don't often think of, of this. Um, I, in all of my way too many degrees in theology and biblical studies, I, I never got this. Um, thankfully, there's, there's more being written. Um, I think we're more sensitive to it. But we need to keep thinking in terms of, is, is abuse really a biblical category? Does Scripture really have that much to say? <laughs> From beginning to end, I'll argue Scripture is that the meta-narrative, or at least one of the meta-narratives of Scripture, I'm absolutely convinced, is shalom shattered, shalom restored, particularly in terms of abuse. Uh, 
Kurt last night gave us just a good quick overview of Genesis 2 and Naked and Unashamed. So I'm not going to build on that other than to say that's, that's God's intent is this complete openness. The Hebrew there in, um, in Adam and Eve being naked uh, suggests um, that it was an ongoing, it's all they had ever known from the beginning of being created. Complete oneness with each other, so there was complete exposure uh, to themselves. Uh, they're connected with themselves to each other and certainly to God, their creator. What happens the instant sin comes into the world? Genesis 3. First thing they do is hide from each other and hide from God. And to hide from each other, they put on fig leaves. Have you ever felt a fig leaf? You really don't want a fig leaf underwear. You really don't. I had a fig tree once. It's like sandpaper. What does that say to us? It says, in, our, in the disruption of shalom, we will do anything, no matter how painful and destructive, to protect our sense of vulnerability. Because when shalom is, is shattered... Everything else falls apart, and we are desperate to protect ourselves, hide from the other. Or the second thing they did is hide from God in the bushes. So this is like the ultimate futile exercise. Um, again, in our desperation, we do crazy things when shalom's been shattered. I think right there in Genesis 3, you have a prediction of what's going to happen in, in a shalom-violated world in terms of abuse. Genesis 3.16 uh, and I think this isn't God's desire, but it's pre his prediction. In a fallen world, certain things are going to happen. Um, the woman's desire will be for the man. And, and I think without going into explanation, you can read some of my books um, to get, get the arguments. But I think it's, he's describing a codependency. Um, women will have a, a common temptation to try to get from a man what ultimately can only be gotten from God. And tell me that doesn't happen. <laughs> Tell me that's not common uh, in, in, in women's fallenness. And conversely, the man will tend to use the power God's given him to dominate, but he shall rule over you. That's been interpreted different ways. But I think the best understanding um, is not rule in a healthy, male-loving headship, but domination. I think God's predicting in a fallen world, as soon as shalom is, shalom is shattered, um, we're going to use the potencies, the way God's wired us, in self-destructive ways and other destructive ways. Um, okay, we, we get to Genesis 4, first chapter after the fall, what happens? First fatal domestic violence. Brother kills brother. I mean, how quickly does it take in a shalom-shattered world before there's... There's fatal abuse. Next chapter. Then the end of Genesis 4, you have the first instance of, of um, marital domestic violence. You have this character named Lamech, first polygamist in the Bible, who threatens his two wives. That's, that, that's abuse. Um, he, he doesn't say, that, you don't have a record there of him physically assaulting the, them, but he threatens them. And that's within... Uh, my definition of domestic violence. We're only one chapter after the fall. Two chapters later, Genesis 6, abuse is so prevalent on the earth that God sends the flood. 
you may, may or may not have thought about the fact that the flood came because of abuse, because of bloodshed. Wow. I could literally walk you through, this is just the first book of the Bible, as you know, entire book of Genesis is abuse after abuse after abuse. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham twice exposed his wife, Sarah, to rape by foreign monarch. He threw her under the bus to protect himself. His son Isaac did the exact same thing, followed dad's example. My goodness. And then Sarah, the wife of the patriarch, so mistreated her handmaid Hagar and her son that they would have died in the desert had God not miraculously intervened through an angel. I mean, these are the patriarchs for crying out loud. And it just goes on and on. Uh, Judah has sex with his, not realizing it, daughter-in-law and was going to have her burned at the stake until he finds out he's the father. Um, of course, Joseph, maybe being the, one of the, clear, is the clearest redemptive example, again, abused by his brother, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt. Um, he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife, by others, imprisoned for some 15 years. God does this incredible work of deliverance. It is a story of abuse and redemption. And then that beautiful statement, Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, your abuse, God meant for good, to bring about this present deliverance. People ever ask me to sign my book, that's the verse I write. I think that is, that is just one of the most beautiful statements of the way God delights in using the worst. He didn't cause it. God, God is holy and good and loving. He doesn't cause abuse, but he is sure powerful enough to use it, to bring about good purposes. Um, that's just the first book of the Bible. I, I could literally, if I had the time, walk you through each book of the Bible Exodus, which is the, the greatest story uh, in, in the nation of Israel, um, the, the Exodus from Egypt is about what? Abuse. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were being beaten uh, by the Egyptians. Oh, and by the way, the one God used, Moses, <laughs> was an abuser. He killed a fellow Hebrew. You know, think about that. I could talk about Torah, um, the way within the law of Moses, there's statement after statement giving particular protection to the vulnerable lest they be abused. Year of Jubilee, perhaps, being one of the clearest examples of, of God building into law of Moses provision for shalom to be restored, that every 50 years, uh, the end of the 49th year, uh, land would go back to the original owner. Debts are released. Um, anyone who's in slavery would be set free. God is a God of shalom, of restoration. Now, of course, that's not complete, but it speaks to us about the fact that God's heart is for restoration. In a sinful, fallen world, there is disruption with God, self, and others. That, that's, that happens instantly when sin comes into the world. But God is a God who is rebuilding. We go through the historical books. My goodness, there were very few godly kings of Israel. Uh, abuse after abuse. Um, supremely seen in multiple kings sacrificing their own children um, to the Canaanite gods, Moloch uh, in particular. And God specifically says how he detested that. Um, and of course, Saul, the first king of Israel, was an abuser. He tried to kill his own son. He cried, tried to kill David. He killed some 70 priests. Um, abuse story after abuse story. But God is working in the midst of that. We get to the prophetic books. 
oh, I wish I had time to unpack those. Just about every uh, book of prophecy, uh, the minor and, and major prophets, um, with very few exceptions, are books about abuse, oppression, economic abuse, particularly physical abuse, some cases spiritual abuse. Um, it is woven, woven through the prophets. But supremely, those, those promises of the coming Messiah, uh, Isaiah 42, that he will not become, grow faint or weary until he's established justice in the earth. Oh, King Jesus, come back. We need your justice. It's in a context of oppression, abuse. Oppression's the broad category. Abuse is a little more narrow. Um, maybe supremely in Isaiah 61, um, which I think we, we'll get up here on the screen. There we go. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, pro proclaim liberty to the captives, opening a prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's the language of Jubilee, the day of vengeance of our God to all who mourn, to, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That is language of restoration of shalom, building up the ancient ruins. I just love that. I love that. That's the text when Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, at least as Luke records it, Luke chapter 4, this is the text he preaches. And then Jesus says, today in your hearing, in your own ears, this is being fulfilled. Tell me that God is not a God of shalom. This is the message of Jesus. And the church is to carry out the mission of Jesus. Our task should be shalom building. Our task should be creating communities that prioritize and emphasize and carry out shalom. And of course it's incomplete. Um, the, the, the kingdom has been inaugurated but not consummated, as theologians often say. And it's interesting, in that quote, Jesus stopped, I mean, there weren't verses in the Old Testament, That's, that didn't come in until several hundred years ago, um, but he stopped in our Bibles what's mid-verse. He didn't, he didn't quote the, the day of vengeance, that, that's the second coming. But hopefully you get the point. Um, Jesus came to restore shalom, and of course he did it through being abused. And that's, that's the, the mission of the church, is to be about shalom rebuilding. Well, we could go on through the, uh, the epistles uh, and, again, see over and over. I could, I could look at this from another angle, and that would be looking at the language of Scripture, um, looking at the, the words that are used for justice and mercy. Um, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of instances, uh, both Testaments, uh, of Greek and Hebrew words being used for justice. Um, just, just the four most common words translated justice in both Testaments are used over 1,000 times. Um, and justice biblically is, and you find this in the Greek and Hebrew lexicons. Um, it's just like plantinga. Andy, good job. Um, plantinga is as good as it gets. Uh, shalom is the way things ought to be. Sin violates what God intended. Um, but the biblical language for justice is, is that putting things back the way they should be. Uh, the Hebrew word mishpat in, in particular is all that it, uh, Chris Wright says, mishpat is 
all that's required to bring things back to their place of proper order. That's the mission of the church. I'm convinced abuse is one of the most common and pernicious ways Satan violates shalom. And he calls us as the people of God to be agents of restoration and healing, to restore what's been violated, to restore what Satan tried to rip apart and is ripping apart. But Satan doesn't have the last say. Andy, that was quick. Build on it. <laughs> Tell us more about Shalom. Thanks. Sit back up here. Okay, so I want to go through just a couple ways in which Shalom is shattered and then how Shalom is restored. Um, if I could go to that first slide. The first point here is that shalom is about thriving. It is. It's about this flourishing. Trauma is about surviving. Okay, and if, if you know anything about the neurobiology of the brain, our brain develops from bottom to top and then right to left. And what that means is that the lowest parts of our brain deal with fight, flight, or freeze. They deal with um, survival, and they deal with things that happen in our body automatically. Breath, digestion, uh, blood pressure, all of these different things are happening at the low region of the brain. When you move up to the second region of the brain, that's our emotional and our relational brain. That is the type, of, that's a part of our brain that deals with how do we connect with other people? How do we take in social cues? How do we feel safe in relationship? Moving up to the prefrontal cortex, that is our rational brain. When trauma happens, what part of the brain are we in? Down in the brainstem, down in the reptilian brain, that, that primitive brain. We don't think logically when we're in our trauma. Either we've experienced trauma or we're experiencing re-traumatization. We are not in a logical part of our brain. We are in survival. And that is very detrimental to live our lives in a frozen, fearful, fleeing state, always trying to seek for safety. That is not shalom. So let me give you two, two points here on how we can heal that. Focus on your breath. Okay. Heidi will come up in a little bit and do some exercises with, this, with us on this, but to calm the lower regions of the brain in order to access those logical parts of our brain that build awareness, that help us rationally think through our experience, in order to calm the lower regions of the brain, we have to breathe. The other thing I would encourage you to do is take in your five senses. So um, what I typically do with people in, in therapy is when they become dysregulated, when they become overwhelmed, I will have them just focus on one thing in the room and just notice the detail of that one thing for about one to two minutes. Then I'll have them focus on their hearing. What do you hear? Just that sense for about two minutes. And we go through all of the different senses because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get them out of survival and into thriving by calming that lower part of their brain. Okay, Heidi will do more with that. The next point, shalom is about embodiment. Embodiment is this idea of I have a body, my body's good, and I feel safe in my body. Trauma is ultimately about escape. One way that we escape in trauma is through dissociation. 
And dissociation is not something we, la- we rationally do. It's an involuntary response. It's a God-given survival mechanism in which we escape from our reality by disconnecting from our thoughts, sense of identity, and consciousness. When we experience abuse, especially with children, children have a way of kind of disconnecting from the abuse because if they actually lived in the body in that moment, it would annihilate them. It would annihilate their sense of identity. It would annihilate their sense of safety. And if we can disconnect, we can somehow distance ourselves from the abuse. The problem is when that happens, we get stuck in disconnection. We actually don't know how to come back to embodiment. So here are some things that we can do. Pay attention to your bodily sensations. Once again, Heidi's gonna lead us in this very well. Notice what happens in your body. When we experience trauma, we wanna escape our body because it's no longer safe. We have to get back into our body because that is shalom restored. We have to own our body and we have to treat it with care. At the most basic primitive levels, remember, when we're in our survival brain, we're dealing with digestion, heart rate, sleep patterns, and breathing. How many of you actually know when you need to eat but you don't eat? How many of you know when you need to use the restroom but you just prolong it because you're working? How many of you know you should sleep and yet you don't? We're in their survival brain and we need to care for ourselves at the most basic level. Breath, sleep, eating. Next point. Shalom is about acceptance and trauma is about avoidance. In trauma, we avoid places, people, things, sensations, locations, sense. In trauma, we disconnect and we avoid every single thing that reminds us of our trauma in the past. Because we know that if we get sucked back into our trauma, we will feel the same things that we felt in our trauma and that's too overwhelming. So we avoid everything. And what this means for relational connectivity, being able to connect with others, is that if you show me your trauma, what do I do if I haven't dealt with my trauma? I avoid you. And that re-traumatizes you because it reminds you, you're not safe and you won't be safe. We have got to face instead of avoiding. And here are some things that we can do. Be honest with what you know and what you feel. Bessel van der Kolk, Caleb mentioned him. He says if we're going to heal from trauma, we need to be honest with what we, we know and what we feel. Meaning that we can't, we have to feel in our bodies what we're actually feeling. We have to know what we know. We can't disconnect from what the reality is of our stories. We need to identify our triggers. And we need to feel the full extent of our emotions. And let me show you what this looks like. Six steps I take people through in my office when we identify feelings and emotions. The first step is to identify that you are an emotional person. Okay? You are emotional. I have so many people come in and say, I don't feel emotion because I'm a very rational person. Um, you experience emotion because it's not your ration that got you in my room, it's your emotion. It's all of the felt sense that you couldn't handle. Accept that you're emotional. Recognize that you actually feel something in your body. Something's stirring, something's going on. Then name that feeling. Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it discouragement? 
And even sometimes before we get to that point, we need to take people further into their body because the body never lies. We can lie up here. Our body will never lie. It's always true. It's always accurate. It knows what we feel. So three and four can sometimes be switched. Sometimes I'll have people feel their bodies, notice what's going on in their bodies, and sometimes through that, they'll be able to name a feeling. Then we have to actually feel it. <laughs> this is the hardest part for people because they identify the feeling. I'm feeling sad. And then what do they do? They take it up here and they rationalize it. And they describe it to me. And I said, tell me about that feeling. Or what does that feel like? And they say, well, they list off categories. They list off data. It's so hard for us to actually feel what we feel. But we need to do that. We need to express it. And we need to share it with other people. And that's point six. Okay, last thing here. Number four. Shalom is about security. And trauma is about separation. There's this quote that goes, trauma of all kinds, but especially the types that shatter or obstruct the concept of a merciful, just, and loving God, and that call into question the goodness and the trustworthiness of other humans have special capacities to interfere with our systems of meaning. Your ability to connect with God at church and through scripture is not because you don't understand something theologically, it's because you've learned that God is disconnected because your family was disconnected. You've learned that God um, doesn't care to be with you because nobody cared to be with you when you were younger. Our attachment to God is a result of our attachment to our most basic family members, our most basic kind of early stages of development. It's not like I have a faith with God and it's a silo that happens with me and God. No. How we know God is through our experience with people. And therefore, two things need to happen. If we could look at this. We need to reestablish safety with ourselves, with others, and God. And what that looks like is finding safe communities, safe places where we can really connect. And I love this point here. We need to really enter into the trauma of Scripture and not only connect with the suffering servant who died on the cross, but the conquering king as well. I'll talk about this in addiction. We are a people of the conquering king. We know nothing about the suffering servant. And because of that, we miss this deep intimacy with Jesus because we want him to conquer. We want to move forward. We want to progress forward. And yet we don't know how to sit with the suffering servant. We have got to enter into that. So these are some practical, very quick fire hose things that we can practice as people individually. Steve's going to give us some ways that we can kind of heal as a community. So welcome him back up for me, please. Thank you, Andy. Man, that was practical. I'd like to just stop and let you have the next hour, but I guess we can't do that. Too late to do that. Thank you. Okay, four things real quickly uh, in terms of how the church can restore shalom. Ten minutes. Just, just four big ideas. Obviously, this is a huge topic, but let me boil down some things after 20 years of working with church leaders, being a pastor, um, that I think can make a real difference uh, in the church being a, a place of shalom restoration. And the first is this. Lean into our own brokenness as ministry leaders. Having, having worked in the area of trauma care, for a long time, I have found that the most 
One of the most critical factors in whether a given church will become a shalom-restoring community, particularly in the context of abuse, is whether or not the leadership is willing to acknowledge, <coughs> lean into their own brokenness. We're not trained to do that in seminary. <laughs> Man, we're trained to write good research papers and doctrinal statements and but we don't get enough practice as church leaders in leaning into our own brokenness. Oh my goodness, have I had to learn this one the hard way. We're all broken. We are all broken. We're sinners. We were raised by sinners. <laughs> we're surrounded. We, you've never related on a human level to anyone but a sinner. It's how it works. You might think your husband or wife's an angel. Actually, if you're realistic, you know better. Um, but yeah, it's a broken world. We have sinned against others and they have sinned against us. You know, you don't have to be abused, capital A, to have experienced deep woundedness at the hands of another person. And that shapes us, that impacts us in profound ways. And as leaders, most of you are, we have to be the ones, first and foremost, to be willing to enter deeply into our own woundedness. I love what Henry Nouwen, in a book on ministry, says about leaders being willing to enter into their own pain. The great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Yeah. The great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So we've got to be willing to lean into our own pain, whether that's through taking advantage of, of counseling. You've been introduced to some wonderful resources here. Um, we've written curriculum, um, small group curriculum, Many in the Soul workbook. Um, there's lots and lots of resources um, but take advantage of that as leaders. Um, and it's a long and an arduous process. I'm back in counseling myself for some secondary trauma issues. Um, there was a day not that many years ago, I, I wouldn't admit that. It's like, hey, I'm Steve. I have a PhD and I lead the ministry, okay? I don't need this. I help other people. That's a load of baloney. Um, I'm broken just like you and so are you. The only issue is whether or not we're, we're willing to admit that and enter into it. And to the extent that we do, we're going to help as leaders create a community that's shalom restoring. Number two, acknowledge the problem of shattered shalom in our families and churches. And maybe that should seem, duh, obvious. And it's somewhat related to number one. It's hard for me as, a, as an individual spiritual leader to admit I have deep wounds and it's hard for us to admit as churches that we have brokenness we can't effectively robustly have shalom rebuilding communities if we're telling a fairy tale man we got it all together this is such a great church we're doing everything right yeah 
But we act like that, don't we? I mean, I've given my life to, to, to the church. Spent 15 years as a pastor. I train church leaders. My heart is for the church. So I think I can be critical because this is my heart. We have a hard time. I don't know if we have a harder time as evangelicals. I'm not sure. I know other traditions have their problems too. Certainly the Catholics. I, I think it's probably hard for any given community um, to admit, yeah, we've got a problem here too. But until we admit that, until we acknowledge shalom has been violated in our own communities, our own families, there's no way we're going to be a safe place for shalom restoration. Any of you recognize the name Rachel uh, Denhollander? Well, it's good I put this in my notes. Um, Rachel Denhollander, I, I imagine many of you have heard about the, the whole Larry Nasser. Um, just, I mean, it, it, this is one of the worst abuse stories we've heard in a really long time. He, he was the, for what, 20 years, he was the coach for the U.S. Gymnast, uh, gymnastics team, faculty at University of Michigan. We don't even know, but it's estimated that he molested over 250 girls. It was covered up, covered up, covered up, covered up, covered up um, by, by everyone, seemingly. Rachel was one of the girls who was molested. She was the first one to come forward. That takes a tremendous amount of courage. What's, what's beautiful out of the evil and sadness is she is a devout follower of Jesus. And I mean devout. Her testimony, she, had, she was the last one in court to, to give a, uh, a victim statement. And it was redemptive. She called on him to repent. But it wasn't a, it, it, it was just a beautiful, gospel-centered, um, hope-filled truth and grace. Um, it was model. Well, I'll just point you to, there's been some Christianity Today articles she, uh, her husband's, uh, I mean, her husband's a pastor, um, very conservative, reformed church. They love Jesus. She stood up. At, the church was really with her when, when she shared what happened at the hands of an unbelieving physician. But the moment, about the same time, she began to advocate for some women in the church who had been part of being abused by another church and it had been covered up and she started advocating for them she and her husband were asked to leave their church I won't and it's a really well known any of you would recognize and I, I, I don't need to give names you can read the specifics uh, and, and she wrote a the, the church defended themselves and said she didn't know what she's talking about she's an attorney <laughs> That was a mistake. <laughs> she wrote, uh, she did her homework. And, and again, you can go to her website. It was incredible, uh, uh, the way she documented. But, but it was, to me, a model of truth and grace. I say that simply to say, um, in the CTR, Christian Today interview, she said, speaking out for sexual assault victims cost me my church and our closest friends. The church is one of the worst places to go for help. She went on to say, if it's Harvey Weinstein, oh, we'll say, yeah, that's horrible. Look what he did. He's evil. But see, he's, he's not a professing Christian. He's liberal. 
Clinton supported him. <laughs> but if it's our community, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want to say shalom's been violated. We have to have the courage to acknowledge the truth. Three, I've got to keep going. Listen, listen. You know what James says, James chapter one. We should be quick to hear and slow to speak. We've got to listen to abuse survivors. I especially say this to you who haven't experienced abuse. Um, and I think it's especially true for men. Um, you can see, I'm not a little guy. Um, and I've done sports my whole life. I boxed in college. I, I, I haven't known a whole lot. There haven't been a lot of times in my life where I felt physically threatened. Um, I mean, just by virtue of being a pretty big male with some athletic skills, um, I, I don't understand the sense of threat that, that particularly women experience. And the only way I'll figure that out is to shut my mouth and listen without defending or explaining, well, maybe you didn't understand or blah, 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 just listen. Give you a quick example. And I'll give you a chance to practice this, by the way, real quick. Um, we've been a part of Imago Day community in Portland for about five years. Um, we have several African-Americans on our staff, and it's one of the things we, many things we love about Imago Day. They're very deliberate to, to try to live out gospel values, and that includes ethnic diversity. Well, you'll probably remember in 2005, there was a horrible church shooting in Charleston, North Carolina, African-American church. Several were killed. That Sunday... They had some special reflections. Some of the African-Americans just kind of let our church in lament. I've never, I've never seen a church do that. We just heard the voices. And then not much later, and this is where you're going to get a chance to just internally practice listening. The Sunday after Trump was elected, Rick skipped the normal sermon and had two of our African-American staff, and he did an interview with them. And it wasn't political, but he just let, interacted with them about what they experienced as an African-American in light of the election. We had some whites walk out, very angry. You know what? How would I, as a white guy, know what it's like for an African-American to live in this culture that was built on the backs of slaves and continues to be a culture where I have white privilege. We've got to listen and to create communities that listen to the voice of the other. That will help us begin to create a shalom restoring community. We'll finally prioritize restoration of shalom as the mission of the church. And I close with this. Our budgets our sermons, our Sunday morning testimonies, our pastoral prayers, our annual goals must reflect that we prioritize restoration of shalom from beginning to end. It's woven into what we do. Well, I'm just going to throw up because our time's up and I need to give you a break. Um, I'll just let you read this. Um, Howard Thurman um, was an African-American pastor, brother in Christ, civil rights activist, and, and I love his statement about the, the, the work of the church uh, in terms of Christmas. I, I'm not going to take time to read it. The task of the church is the restoration of shalom. 
won't be completed till Jesus comes back, but we work toward that day uh, as we listen, as we live out the gospel in the context of abuse and shattered shalom. God, give us strength to do that. Thanks.